0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Regulators are looking for easy solutions, but there's no easy solution.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of the Supreme Court declining to take up a case on FISA transparency. I share some BBC coverage of a location data vendor, Data Breach. And later in the show, Boris Sagalis from Goodwin discusses possible SEC proposals that would require companies to have standardized cyber security systems and to monitor their digital risks while this show covers legal topics and ben is a lawyer the views expressed do not constitute legal advice for official legal advice on any of the topics we cover please contact your attorney the it world used to be simpler you only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled then came new technologies and new ways to work Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
2: All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories this week. Why don't you start off for us? So my story comes from the Washington Post. Um, It's entitled, The Supreme Court Will Not Hear a Case Seeking More Transparency from the Secretive Surveillance Court. Of course, that is referring to our friends at the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA. Mm. So the ACLU has filed suit against the United States, alleging that FISA lacks transparency. A lot of their decisions, including ones that have an outsized impact on our surveillance state, are never released to the public. Mm. Um, Obviously, it makes sense that, you know, most cases when uh, they are decided have to be secretive. Surveillance is— You
1: say that's kind of their thing, right? That's kind of the point, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Surveillance wouldn't be
2: very uh, effective if the people who are being surveilled uh, were made aware that they were being surveilled. Right. Um, So this is more about post hoc transparency. Mm. Whether opinions that have significant impact on policy are released, you know, several years down the line uh, after they have been issued. Hmm. There are a couple of issues here. The first is in 2015, Congress passed a law uh, saying that the executive branch should at least consider releasing FISA court decisions that have a significant policy impact, uh, where the public should have a right to know uh, on which side the FISA court has come down. Hmm. And then there are a bunch of decisions prior to 2015 that have still not been released, but are still in effect. I mean, FISA, as far as we know, hasn't reversed most of its pre-2013 decisions including on some of the major bulk electronic surveillance questions, hmm. like Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act um, and other programmatic surveillance. Hmm, okay. So uh, the ACLU took this suit all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, just yesterday uh, announced that it was declining to take the case. Huh. Now, generally you need four out of the nine justices to agree to take a case in order for it to be heard. And the majority of justices, presumably, who didn't want to hear this case, didn't give their reasoning. And generally they don't. You don't have to give a a reason why you don't accept the case. It kind of leaves the public uh, in a lurch, not really knowing, you know, why the case uh, didn't get its day in court.
1: Is there a a historical reason or justification for that? Or, or you know, folks in your line of work, is there an understanding as to why that's the standard for the Supreme Court?
2: Basically, there haven't been oral arguments uh, or briefs filed on either side of the equation, so I think, in the view of the court, it would be unfair for them to release a long, lengthy opinion as a matter of custom without Hmm. going through those procedural steps. Now, they sometimes release their reasoning anyway, especially on contentious, hot-button issues, and very frequently we get what are these dissents uh, from the denial of certiorari, and that's what we got here. Hmm. So, if you have justices who would have taken the case they'll release their own opinion about why they would have taken the case. And we have quite the odd couple here. (laughs) Uh, Obama appointee uh, and liberal justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Trump appointee and very conservative justice Neil Gorsuch Hmm. uh, jointly wrote an opinion uh, dissenting from the denial of certiorari, the the court's denial to hear the case on the merits here. Hmm. And they argue that you know, there is such an inherent First Amendment value in transparency. The public can't make public policy decisions in terms of, um, you know, the elected officials that it elects and supports if they're not fully aware of the implications of of those decisions. And to have these decisions on especially, you know, bulk programmatic surveillance be so secretive, uh, you know, that cuts against transparency, that cuts against the public's right to know what their government is, is doing. Uh, obviously, there are going to be times where the government is justified in, in keeping those opinions secretive. Um, but I think uh, from what Justice Justices Gorsuch and Mayor are saying, that should not be the custom. There should be a default towards transparency. Hmm. I think what's even more disturbing to them is the United States government argues that the court should not be in any position itself to make a decision as to whether an opinion is declassified that should be solely within the province of the executive branch. That interpretation, I think, in their view, would be particularly dangerous uh, because the executive branch could decide on its own without any judicial review never to release any FISA opinion, um, including ones that have a major impact on public policy uh, or on Fourth Amendment jurisprudence or even First Amendment uh, jurisprudence. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that certainly rubbed Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor the wrong way. They claim... Quote, the extraordinary claim that this court is powerless to review lower court decisions, even if they are mistaken, uh, just cuts against the notions of, of fairness and transparency. He says, On the government's view, literally no court in this country has the power to decide whether citizens possess a First Amendment right of access to the work of our national security courts. And in his view, if these matters are not worthy of our time, then what is? Hmm. I mean, we're dealing with such fundamental issues of constitutional rights, of transparency. Of the government's power uh, to listen into our phone conversations, uh, to collect our stored communications, our electronic communications, that, you know, to say that courts would have no role in determining whether these decisions could be declassified is particularly dangerous. So even if, you know, ultimately the court came down on the side of, The government has a valid reason not to release this opinion. The court should at least have a role in the process, if that Mm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what
1: happens now? I mean, does that leave uh, decisions about transparency? Does that leave that in the lap of Congress then?
2: I mean, Congress – yes. So Congress would have to pass a law that expands the USA Freedom Act of 2015 to require the uh, redaction of FISA opinions in a greater number of circumstances. Uh, so right now, uh, the 2015 law uh, only requires the government to review whether they should release any opinions for public release. Hmm. Um, what Congress could do is step in and say, after you know a given statutory time period, maybe three to five years, an opinion has to be released to the public unless there are, you know, significant national security concerns.
1: Right. So have some sort of sunsetting on it, with the, with the with the caveat that if they're that if it needs to be extended, it can be. But the default is that it gets shared.
2: Right. I mean, that's how it works with presidential records. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if uh, the Kennedy assassination papers are going to be redacted for fifty years, um, and then finally, in fifty years, by statute, will release them. Um, unless the government has some sort of compelling reason uh, to keep the information secretive. Right. Hint, hint to our conspiracy theorists out there. <laughs> the grassy knoll. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that's the role Congress could play in here. Do I think Congress is going to step in and, and take this step? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think they are in as much of a uh, surveillance skeptic mode as they were in 2015. That was two years after the Snowden leaks. Um, So there was sort of a political mood against the surveillance state. I will say, you know, after uh, the Carter Page FISA warrant and that scandal and the Horowitz report, you know, I think there is certainly some conservative skepticism of the power of the FISA court. Hmm. Um, So you might see more bipartisan uh, support for a measure to require transparency. Um, But yeah, I mean, in terms of the path of this case through our court system, uh, it's over. You, you're going to have to get uh, additional justices who agree with Sotomayor and Gorsuch uh, in order to have this case heard of the Supreme Court again unless Congress decides to step in.
1: Could could you help me understand the machinations of, of this case making its way to the Supreme Court? I mean this article here in The Post says the justices turned down a request from the ACLU and others to review a ruling. Um Explain to me how that works. How does how does something like this get put in front of the
2: Supreme Court, uh, even for their consideration? Great question. So generally, cases in front of the Supreme Court come from two places. The majority of them come from federal circuit courts, so federal courts of appeal, uh, courts of appeals. The losing party in that case can petition the Supreme Court for certiorari, uh, and the Supreme Court and either decide to take up that case or not take up that
1: now, case. Now, let's just pause for a second there. You used a fancy word. Uh, what is that word, that fancy word you used? Certiorari? Yes, please, stop. It's some Latin mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> it basically
2: means... Uh, Giving the case its day in court. Got it. Agreeing to hear the case. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, at least I believe it's Latin. I screwed that up in the past when yeah. I said it was Latin and it wasn't. And Boy, we, got did we hear from our
1: listeners. We sure did, and, <laughs> and I definitely deserved it uh,
2: that time. Okay. Uh, cases can also make their way from state Supreme Courts. So if it's a state case that deals with a uh, federal constitutional issue or in very rare circumstances— Bush v. Gore comes to mind Hmm. dealing with uh, a state constitutional issue or a state statutory issue. Those cases can also make it to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court has discretion as to which cases it hears. There are thousands and thousands of petitions to the Supreme Court uh, to get cases heard every year. Hmm. And they generally hear somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100 cases per year. Hmm. Uh, So that is a small fraction of those cases. They have what's uh, called a cert pool. So a bunch of law clerks review all of the applications to get cases heard in front of the Supreme Court. Um, so those are clerks from all nine justices. Some of them are easy denials. You know, there just might not be a, a valid constitutional claim that's mm-hmm. worthy of the court's time. And that's what the clerks would would suss out. Mm-hmm. They'd go through and say, All right, 85% of these put them in the shredder. No, <laughs> you know, no 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 use for our time. <laughs> right. The rest of the ones where there is a close question, those will go in front of a conference of Supreme Court justices and they'll decide, using this informal rule of four, um, which is a, you know, minority of, of the members of the court, not a majority, mm-hmm. um, they will decide whether to to hear the case. Uh, you know, I think there, there's been criticism of what's called the shadow docket, where the Supreme Court makes decisions as to what cases they're going to take up, mm-hmm. kind of in the dead of night. I mean, they're um not real unlike decisions which are released in a high profile way at the end of a term these decisions sometimes you know come on a friday night it's a news dump uh you know the majority of justices don't have to issue any comment as to why they decided to deny the case mm-hmm. um so oftentimes we have to kind of lean into these dissents to understand what the what the conflict was what what the real issues were uh, at stake and and the supreme court is is always
1: reactive in this case? In other words, cases have to come to them. They don't. They never go
2: out looking for things that interest them. I mean, the only way they can go out and look for things is if there are ripe circuit court cases that have been appealed to them. Okay. Now, right. in a very limited number of circumstances, and we're talking, you know, things that generally happen once in a blue moon, the Supreme Court will have original jurisdiction Hmm. um, and they can hear a case even if there hasn't been a a lower court uh, decision that's been appealed. Is there an example of that? Well, there was some argument as to whether, you know, the dispute between the state of Texas and the state of Pennsylvania uh, during the election season last year, whether that was a case of original jurisdiction, Hmm. that was one uh, state suing another state. Mm. And some justices uh, in that case believed that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction when you have one state suing another state. Hmm. Uh, But a majority of justices didn't come to that view. They uh, rejected a a hearing of the case. Um, There were, I think, three justices who wrote separately to say, we believe this court has original jurisdiction and has to hear all disputes um, when you're talking about one state against another state. So that would be a potential example. Um, But again, those are uh, few and far between.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, Thank you for the uh, very informative lesson on on the functioning of the Supreme Court. I I appreciate that. I hope our listeners do as well. I hope Uh, I didn't bore them. I probably did. Um, No, no, not at all. I mean, I I think it's – I I think so much of this happens with the assumption that uh, people – just sort of get it and and i you know i think most of us don't so to have someone like you who actually understands all this stuff explain it to us i think that's quite helpful
2: yeah i mean i think you got a lot of people it's sort of like you know some of us who are not on the technical side just kind of not along when right. Right. You know, people right. are talking right. about Somebody starts explaining how Wi-Fi works, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah that's hmm. good. Packet that's switches?
1: Sure, okay, yeah, that, that sure. sounds like a thing. Yeah, yeah frequency, spread spectrum, great. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, well good stuff. Um, let's move on to my story this week. Uh, my story comes from the BBC. This is written by Jane Wakefield, and it's titled, Location Data Collection Firm Admits Privacy Breach. Uh, And this is from a company called Hook. It's H-U-Q, and I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly. It's sort of a double... That sounds right. It's a double whammy because it's it's a uh, UK company, and so they don't always pronounce things the same way that we do also. Uh, let me just say we fought a revolutionary war on that, I believe. <laughs> right, exactly. Right over over the correct, correct pronunciation of aluminum. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so um, Huck is a firm that uh, deals in the the brokering of location data. They claim that they do all of this anonymously. Uh, just, you know, side note, if you, as you and I have uh, spoken about uh, quite often, particularly with location data, it is quite easy to de anonymize location data. Sure is. Um, yep. But uh, this company uh, recently released news that uh, two firms that they gather data from uh, had what they refer to as technical breaches of data privacy requirements. Um, and these were fairly it's the, the types of apps that were gathering your location data. So one was a Wi-Fi strength meter, and another scans barcodes. Right. So utilitarian apps. Sure. And I, I think we see this a lot, where these utilitarian apps they have they have. One function. They have one job. (laughs) You had one job, utilitarian app. But behind the scenes, they're almost a Trojan horse to get onto your device to be able to report back information to these data brokers. And in this case, they were sharing location data uh, despite users saying that they did not want their data shared. Uh, So... The UK's uh, Information Commissioner office is looking into this. Uh, it obviously, there's the possibility
2: of a GDPR violation here. Um, I, that's I, how it would apply to countries outside of, of the UK. Yeah. Um, but uh, because of Brexit, right – Oh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think there would have to be a separate cause of action within the UK from the UK Information Commissioner's Office.
1: Right, right. Mm. That's an excellent point. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. Yeah. So they say that these apps have have fixed the problem that they had, but I guess I just approach this with a a heaping helping of skepticism where I don't think there's a whole lot of – effort on the part of the data gathering companies to go through and audit the apps that are providing them with this data that and... <sighs> Call it a hunch, Ben, <laughs> but it's just, I suspect when, uh, that's the side they come down on. What is your take here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's its a hunch, but it's also a well-founded hunch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they say that as soon as they were made aware of what they're calling technical breaches, they rectified their code, they republished the apps, everything was taken care of. My question is, how often are they looking under the hood? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you're a data broker firm and you're collecting uh location information from probably hundreds of different applications. Right. Um, and each of those applications has their own EULA, uh, you know, are are they only making these decisions when they are caught in a public forum and when they're facing possible reprimand? through GDPR or through the relevant UK office. I think that's what I would worry about here is all of this happens after there's already been a, a recognized breach. right? Um, and I think that's, you know, something that consumers should be wary of. Um, just by, you know, the nature of data brokerage, mm-hmm. companies are going to have incentive to collect as much information as possible you know, because that's how they make their money. Yeah. Um, you know, the bigger universe of location uh, location information, the more valuable it is. yeah, Uh so they don't want to get caught uh, having cut corners or having uh, collected location information where a user has specifically denied them permission to do so. yeah, so you know, I think while they're saying, you know, this one time we took care of the problem, we fixed the code. Uh, download the newest version of the app, everything will be fine. I think it requires us to be more skeptical of uh, these firms in the first place and realize that because of the incentive structure, I think you're going to run into into these difficulties.
1: Yeah, and I would add, you know, for our listeners' sake that these – these single-use apps, you know, and I think the most notorious of all of them are flashlight apps. Mm-hmm. Right, like <laughs> press a button, turn on your flashlight, and hey, you think uh,
2: that's uh, pretty innocuous, right? Right,
1: but uh, historically, they they gather all sorts of things behind the scenes and send them back. But these single-use apps, you know, I'm in the midst of doing something. I need something that's going to scan a barcode. I need something that's going to – all sorts of little single functions. And it's easy to go to the app store, find the thing that does that, download Mm -hmm. it, and, and use it for what it's there for. It probably does a great job at the thing that it says it's going to do. But then the problem is you forget about it. Yep. And that app is sitting on your device now, and in the background, it's just doing its thing, gathering— Collecting
2: all that location information. Right. Yep.
1: Now, to their credit, I mean, some of the mobile device providers, you know, Apple, for example, uh, some of their recent releases, they track this. And it'll you'll get a pop-up that says, hey, uh, you know, the flashlight app has been—
2: Requesting your location data here. For the, <laughs> why this, is the sandwich app that uh, you know you just wanted a free sub six weeks ago? Why are they still tracking my location data? Right, right, exactly.
1: And so they point that out and make you aware of that activity. And they say, "Hey, do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want me to still allow <laughs> that not app to do, do this?" That? Right. But I would say it's worth being vigilant and taking it even to the next step, where when you're done with that app, just delete it. Yep. Delete the app. It's always going to be there on the app store next time you need it, but if it's not something that you're using regularly, if it's a one-time use thing, when you're done with it, get rid of it. Don't yep. don't just be a pack rat and hoard these things because you never know what they're
2: doing behind the scenes, and chances are... It ain't good, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and they mentioned some of the types of applications uh, for which location data is being collected. so flight tracking, weather, Muslim prayers, right. Um, those were among the types of applications where information was being sent to to this company. Yeah. so it's things that really, you know all of us use at least some of those those types of applications, right. Um they're all on our devices. Something like flight tracking is a great example. I mean, unless you fly regularly. Right. Flight Or, you you know, you're an aviation hobbyist. Flight tracking is something you only need once in a while. Mm -hmm. Download that flight tracking app. Figure out when, you know, your grandparents' flight is going to arrive so you can pick them up at the airport on time. Pick your grandparents up at the airport. Delete the app until the next time uh, you need to pick uh, somebody up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's that's the safe practice. That's that's the way to minimize your risk. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, all of our stories in the show notes. Again, that one comes from the BBC. We would love to hear from you. If you have uh, a topic you would like us to cover, you can email us. It's caveat at com. Visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Boris Segalas. He is from uh, the Goodwin Law Firm. And uh, we're discussing some possible proposals from the SEC... That would require companies to standardize their cybersecurity systems and to monitor their digital risks. Here's my conversation with Boris Segalas.
0: I think that uh, this is not really about the SEC in particular. There's been a lot of focus on cybersecurity in kind of the hunt for solutions on how to deal with it across industries and as a nation. And uh, in this push, and we can talk about kind of... Uh, whether it's going to work or not, uh, different agencies, including the SEC, have become more active in kind of trying to find their own way to get the industries that they regulate to be better about cybersecurity. So the SEC has its own proposals that New York Department of Financial Services has cybersecurity regulations. They've become more active in enforcement. And I think we just saw... Um, news from the DOJ that they're going to ramp up enforcement of uh, cybersecurity through holding companies responsible for not reporting breaches or providing defective cybersecurity products and services. So you've got this effort to address cybersecurity from all angles and every agency is um, taking steps to do it. I think from the SEC's perspective, when they are looking at Broker dealers, for example, right? They just had an enforcement action, I think it was six or eight companies, right? And they found that I think six of the eight, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but had policies and procedures that called for something, like say, called for multi factor authentication, but it wasn't implemented at all. And others didn't. So they didn't follow their own procedures. And others didn't take appropriate response to um, vulnerabilities or didn't know about vulnerabilities or. Provided misleading notifications. That's what the SEC alleged. Now they're they're then trying to um, take steps to deal with this problem. But you know, on many levels, I think that the efforts are probably misguided and won't lead to uh, better cybersecurity.
1: Why do you take that position? What, what what do you suppose is misguided about
0: them? So let's say if we take the SEC in particular, and in this enforcement action, they found that a number of companies had required MFA, multi-factor authentication, but it weren't really using it. You say, well, you know, if you're an outside observer, you'll say, "Why? Well, wow, that's like a big deal. These companies really screwed up. But if you get a sense of, if you're in, in kind of in my space and you see how, if you focus on privacy and cybersecurity and you see a lot of companies across different industries, you would recognize that the maturity level of cybersecurity across many, many, many US business sectors is, is low. But there are many reasons why it's low: not understanding the regulations, not having the resources, not understanding how to direct resources. So there's nothing unusual about what the SEC found, and uh, probably nothing that alarming. But to uh, but if you to an outside observer, it's a bigger deal. You've got obviously in the news. It's it's clear that we've got a cybersecurity problem as a nation, and so how do you approach it? You know, this is where it's important to separate governance from politics. Let's say, let's say to the pirate problem off the coast of Africa, right, that existed for some years. Uh, The solution to that was to, let's say, work with the ship owners, give them new routes, make sure they're educated about the threat, and then send the navies and patrol the waters to act as a deterrent, deterrent to the pirates. Another solution would have been, or I could have proposed, is to say, like, let's let's just say, like, um, okay, well, these ships are, you know, they're, they're sailing through the coast of Africa by coast of Africa. They're doing it, you know, let's just tell them that they need to buy their own weapons. They just need to deal with that problem on their own. You know, maybe we'll share some intelligence with them, but pretty much otherwise they're on their own. And, and guess what? If they get um, hijacked and the ship is taken, the liability is really on the operator. For not having had enough guns, or the right kind of guns, uh, or whatever, to prevent the hijacking, now you would have said it was that's a crazy idea, right? But that's what the, the regulators are kind of suggesting. In wherever you look, I mean, they're they're saying let's keep let's hold the companies responsible, or give them some kind of baseline that's sometimes arbitrary, like using MFA to improve security. But using multi factor authentication is maybe only good for today for a particular threat. And guess what? When you go on your investment account or whatever account you visit during the day on your computer, you want the convenience of having to access it and not constantly trying to like log into your services and and do multi-factor authentication. So there's, you know, this, unless it's something everyone's doing and causing, creating that inconvenience for consumers, consumers don't like it. So this idea that we can shift this responsibility to companies that are you know, struggling with this because there's no clear solution and create kind of arbitrary uh, low hanging fruit, like multi-factor authentication or this or that uh, or liability is just not going to work. It hasn't worked. It's not going to work. I mean, the, the solution is really, it's, it's, a, it's a war. It's a cyber war and you need an army, right? Collaboration, working together, giving companies immunity, education, resources to make it go away. And uh, today, what we're seeing in the news constantly is like more rules and more enforcement. So that's maybe that's not a, a conventional view, but uh, I, I doubt that this approach is actually going to work because, from what I what I see in my practice.
1: You know, I wonder if um, a comparison to to something like you know public health is is useful, where. You know, you talk about something like multi-factor authentication. I mean, is that the cyber equivalent of expecting a doctor to wash their hands? You know, and and if they, there there are basic standards of care and um, we talk about cyber hygiene. How unreasonable is it to expect certain baselines of protecting people's data?
0: So I think it's established uh, scientifically that uh, a doctor washing their hands is a uh, there's been probably a million research papers written that that really reduces the risk by like 90% of uh, disease, right? I mean, but uh, multi-factor authentication, I mean, we take that, but other elements are fleeting safeguards, right? I mean, they are good for something maybe that exists today, but hackers change their methods every different day. And the type of attack that's at issue also changes every day. I mean, it's always, it's evolving. It's, it's evolving. So certainly... I mean, I'm not advocating against companies not using multi-factor authentication. It's not always feasible. It's not always proportionate to the inconvenience to consumers or sometimes it's detrimental to the business. Let's say you have a service, and this is maybe not the SEC space, right? But you have a service that allows um, low-income workers access to financial services like uh, money transfers or getting their pay on a card, a bank card, requires an account. And let's say research establishes that most of them don't have an email address and maybe they use a flip phone. They don't have a, phone, a smartphone. So you can't implement multi-factor authentication really in a convenient way because that will deny them access to a particular service. Now, that's that's like a real example. And that's one Example, but that is to say that these the security measures, generally speaking, and I think most regulations actually have it right, where the security measures that companies need to take have to be proportionate to the risk and proportionate to the situations. But even if they do that, there's no guarantee or potential benefit from uh, withstanding an attack. I mean, things that work are sometimes uh, like endpoint monitoring software, like knowing early that an attack occurred, things like that. You know, that I've seen I've seen that having an impact, or you know, backing up your data for as a safeguard against a ransomware attack, even though that's also of limited utility. It's a morass. I mean, it's like regulators are looking for easy solutions, but there's no easy solution. And, And it's very frustrating to see it because for years I think it's been clear that the answer is to find a way for the government and the companies to work together. And in fact, the government has always asked the companies. Com- like whenever I've been in presentations, uh, you know, you've got uh, DOJ and others asking companies to collaborate more on instant investigations because you know the government has the ability to go after these hackers. Now, never mind that companies don't really care who the hackers are; they just want to deal with the business interrupt interruption and legal liability problem. But the uh, impediment to that has always been companies feeling that. If they have an incident, they don't want to get the government involved because they don't want the incident to become public because they're afraid of litigation. And companies across industries, let's make it clear, they're victims of these hackers. Even if they didn't have MFA or didn't follow their own procedures, they're still victims of these hackers. You know, cybersecurity is not the primary business of any of these companies. And uh, they should be protected from breach litigation. I mean, that's. Part of the puzzle, and that's maybe that's politically difficult. But without protections for companies to encourage collaboration and working together, like across industries and with the government, to share resources and knowledge freely to counter that threat, you, you know, if you kind of vacillate between scaring companies into liability and then telling them we have to work together, it's just not going to work.
1: Hmm. So, where do you suppose a, a, a compromise could be on the reporting sides of things, where you know companies are obligated to, uh, on some level to share that a breach has occurred? Uh, is there a way that they can they can do that with the government and and still um, not reveal some of the things that they're afraid to reveal?
0: I mean, I think companies do report some limited information. But there's no full full, uh, cooperation. I, I don't know that there's a middle ground. I mean, it's like the threat is an opportunity and a requirement for a new industry to emerge in the United States. It's a huge opportunity. And that industry is cyber threat protection, but in a different way. What we have today is an industry focused on incident investigation, incident reporting. That's very low value add to the society. It's kind of, um, you know, it's great for lawyers. It's great of vendors who work in this space. But I don't think that it, being notified for a consumer, you know, a hundred times about different breaches that implicate the same information does them any good. I mean, we've got to the point of breaches where your information has been stolen 10 times over. So you've got this kind of cottage industry built around these requirements. What discourages companies from, uh, well, you know, you've got legal, you've got legal requirements to report. You've got legal requirements, you've got lawyers like myself. We look at the legal requirements and we advise companies whether to report or not report or how to report. In that process, we make uh, all sorts of risk determinations because some of these requirements are contain harm thresholds and other gray areas that allow these determinations. And, you know, companies try to do the right thing. But certainly uh, if we take the California law, CCPA, the CCPA introduced a, um, a private right of action for breaches in California, and uh, you know what you've what you've got is uh, if you have more than 500 California residents affected, you have to report to the California AG. Once you do that, the notice becomes public, and once you do that, you know there's a plaintiffs count you know plaintiffs bar waiting for those notices to file litigation. Is that helpful to the society? No, but this certainly becomes a major factor in how companies look at. Breach reporting. If there's going to be a gray area, and your lawyer, outside counsel or in-house counsel, representing a company, you're going to think about how to interpret that requirement in light of the possibility of that class action in the other states that they follow. You know, there's there's nothing, there's no way around it. So that's counterproductive. That's you know, that's something that discourages companies from doing more.
1: To be fair, wouldn't that encourage the companies to put more effort into protecting the data at the outset to
0: prevent the breach? Well, but that, that assumes that it's uh, somehow possible, that there's a formula for doing that. Companies are already doing that. I mean, I think that you, you've, if you, there's no, I've never met a company, let's say, and I've practiced in the privacy space exclusively since 2007, that to the view, oh, we don't care about security, let's just do whatever. I've never met a company like that. They always want to do the right thing within the resources that they they have. So the idea that you've got these companies that are kind of like, don't care about the security of information, it's not not real. I mean, you've got some mom and pop shops, certainly, maybe doctors or, you know, that simply don't have the resources to do more. But, you know, they rely on other uh, tools, like they rely on uh, major cloud providers and um, they rely on major email service providers that have their own security. But I, it's, it's, But the idea that um, companies are just kind of like flippant about security is not true. As the organization gets more complex, it becomes a, a much, much more complicated task as well. Because, you know, think about this. What, what is kind of like security, right? If you think about it at a high level, like how do you as a company, how would a company go about addressing information security program there's a lot you need to know about what you do as a company for example you need to know because what is information security right you've got to conduct a risk assessment to identify the risks to the data and systems and then identify higher risk areas and then apply appropriate controls to those higher risk areas well, to conduct that risk assessment, which in itself is, a, is more art than science, I would say, you've got to know what you're conducting risk assessment against. So that means that you have to have a very, very good understanding of how your company processes data, what systems you use, what vendors you use, what data those vendors get. And as organizations get bigger, it's just not something that's easy for any organization to know because that's not something that they need to know to that level of detail to operate their business, right? Because so much of the business is integration, integration with different services, integration with uh, different cloud providers. And to do security right, you kind of have to take a step back, write it all out, write out the internet on a piece of paper effectively, and then try to go through this process of risk assessment or whatever. Not only that, whenever you go through that process, it only gives you a snapshot of your organization. It's a moment in time. So you have to keep repeating this process. So at the end of the day the only like organizations that can do that and have the resources to do that are large banks because you know if you look at a large bank they have hundreds hundreds of people working in cybersecurity they will have you know a 600 person department working to detect security breaches or something like that incredible amount number of people that's what it takes to do it um kind of well. So to expect smaller businesses, emerging companies and others to do it is unreasonable, even though they want to do the right thing. Right. So there's a disconnect in that, that, you know, punishing, we're always punishing companies that want to do the right thing.
1: No, it's interesting. I mean, I, I sense a certain uh, frustration or resignation on your part that, um, that this isn't easier, that there's no easy solution here.
0: I'm I'm an outside lawyer Whatever the rules are, I help companies deal with those rules. So the SEC comes out with new guidance. They're going to require MFA. They require this and that. Okay, sure, I'll help companies deal with that. But if you ask for my opinion um, on whether these rules... And, you know, nobody cares about my opinion on whether these rules work. Uh, Just like nobody cares, in my opinion, whether, you know, (laughs) the GDPR makes any sense. The company, it's there. It's the law of the land. You have to comply. But since here we're talking about the substance, I think that there's a difference between what's easy to do politically, which is to put liability on these companies and kind of suggest that it's their fault. And again, we talked about that example in the SEC enforcement actions, like where to the outside observer, it's clear these companies screwed up because they their policy said MFA and they didn't have it, but the reality is more nuanced. So, and, and it is frustrating that where others have talked about the solution of kind of working together, building an army, building an industry, and not blaming the companies, that maybe politically that's really hard to accomplish.
1: All right, Ben, interesting conversation, huh?
2: Yeah, really interesting. Um, You know, I think it's... Both encouraging and fascinating, the SEC is starting to look at practices of companies and protecting data, private information, and uh, requiring certain cybersecurity standards. Yeah, um, I think that's not a role we've traditionally seen for the SEC, which has a role that's more economic in, in nature. Uh, and um, you know, I think them venturing into this this area is is something that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Well, again, our thanks to Boris Segalas for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.